Christians tonight. And as I said on Shabbat, Messianics like James, because James is all practical living and Torah. I can remember years ago I was on internet discussion groups with virtually all Sunday Christians, and all grace, 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 grace. And I'd say, wait a minute, what about James? Grace, 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 grace. What about James? Galatians, Galatians. Well, what about James? Romans, Romans. And you have this one little book here, James, sort of counterbalancing all of Paul. And I am of the opinion that Paul is in no way in conflict with James. It's just that Paul is emphasizing something different. And since we just finished doing Galatians, and since Galatians is so often cited as a counterweight to James when you're arguing about the Torah, I thought it might be fun to go through James right after having gone through Galatians. Now, you will remember, those of you who sat through Galatians, that one of the things that we talked about is Galatians is talking about the question of salvation. What we discussed, as Paul very clearly says, that the purpose of the Torah is not salvation. That's not its function. And if you are coming at the Torah with the intention that it is going to save you in the Baptist sense, you know, it will prevent you from going to hell and all that kind of stuff, you got the wrong document because that's not what it's designed to do. What it's designed to do is once you have a relationship with God, then it tells you how do you live in his kingdom to operate in blessing. Unfortunately, people who are of sort of the grace only and stay away from that old law persuasion, and there are lots of them in the Sunday church, will seize on Galatians and say, Paul says right here, you don't want to do anything with that law. And then they'll come over to James and they'll say, well, but if you miss one step in the law, you're guilty of all of it. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is not what either Paul or James is saying. So James is considered to be the brother of Yeshua. If it's the same James that is in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, he is the president of the synagogue in Jerusalem, obviously a believer. He starts off, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Yeshua Messiah. There's no question that the guy is a Christian in the sense that we understand it. He is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's important because he is writing to other Hebrews. Paul is writing to Gentiles. Paul's audience is Gentiles, and he is writing differently because Gentiles don't know nothing about nothing about Torah. So he's got to get them sort of in on the ground floor. James is writing to the tribes, and they all have at least some familiarity with Torah. So he is coming at it from a different perspective. One can assume that Hebrews understand some stuff that Gentiles don't. And Paul, when he writes, has got to start at a more basic level and sort of bring them up to speed, if you will, whereas James can just launch right into it. This letter is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It is written in many ways very much like the book of Proverbs. And again, that's a style of encoding of wisdom that would be completely familiar to Hebrews. 
And they would just be very comfortable with that way of encoding wisdom, whereas Gentiles probably wouldn't be. They wouldn't understand. Just like today, lots of Sunday Christians, when they study Proverbs, I think, miss a whole bunch of stuff simply because they're looking at it with a Greek mindset instead of a Hebrew mindset. And I count myself years ago in that camp because I would read Proverbs and try and make it logical. And it's not illogical, but that's not the way it's encoding knowledge. And so I would have trouble figuring out what Proverbs were actually, I mean, some things were obvious, but there were a whole lot of things that were just not clear to me in Proverbs. And as I have gotten deeper into the Hebrew way of thought, primarily through a guy named James Krugel, who's written a number of excellent books on how to read the Bible. He's an Orthodox Jew. He is superb. I have learned a tremendous amount from him. He's got a book out, The Idea of Biblical Poetry, where he talks about how to read biblical poetry and what is actually going on as you read it. And the same thing with wisdom literature and so forth. It's a way of encoding things that's foreign to the Greek way of thinking, which is linear and logical. Because of that, I will suggest that a lot of people who read James don't understand James any more than I think they understand Galatians. Because between the two of them, Neither one of them is steering you away from the Torah. What they're doing is they are presenting the Torah to you in its proper context and use. And in its proper context and use, it's a great blessing. If you try and make it do something that it wasn't designed to do, then it will reach back and bite you. We talked about that at length in Galatians, and I don't really need to go through that whole argument. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the subject is trials. He is going to come back to the subject of trials in a few paragraphs. This is what's known as an otbash pattern, also known as a chiasm. So what you have is a thought at the beginning and the same thought at the end, and then you have stuff in between that is commentary on or intensification of or explanation of the two outside concepts. Standard Hebrew way of writing scripture. Stuff is all over the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible too for that matter. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is in the context of what? Trials. So what you're doing is you are asking for wisdom in the context of trials. He ends up with, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. And then if any of you lacks wisdom, well, we've talked about lacking nothing, and then the next sentence we're talking about lacking wisdom. What he's saying is, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. And God will not reprove you for asking. And it goes back to Yeshua, for example, where he says, if any 
one of you asks his father for this, would you expect him to give you that? Well, of course you wouldn't. No father would do that. And in the same sense, your father in heaven will not either. So what he's saying is, fear not to ask wisdom, because if that's what you need to help you in your adversity, and God will give it to you. However, there's a caveat here. However, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you are a Sunday Christian, it's sort of like, okay, i got to make sure that i got myself in the right frame of mind, and I've got to make sure that I don't ever waver, and I've got to make sure that I ask this just right, or I'm not going to get anything from God. It's not what's being said. What it's saying is, as you come before God, come before God trusting that he will do what he said he would do. Not in a panic. You know, how many people do you know that pray to God in a panic? I mean, praying to God in a panic occasionally is okay. You're going over a cliff, praying to God in a panic is probably all you got time for. But most people just go along not paying any attention to God, get themselves into a bind, and then go into a panic. And what he's saying is, if that's your relationship with God, you're unstable. And what you want is a relationship where you are consistently in contact with God, you have learned to trust Him, so that when you ask for wisdom in a certain situation, you are sure that He's going to answer your prayer. It doesn't mean that you have got to screw up your very strongest will and wrinkle your nose just right to make sure that you don't let any stray thoughts enter into your mind. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you have to ask out of a relationship with God, not out of, oh, well, I don't know what to do, so I guess I'll talk to God, which is sort of the other way that people do things. And maybe verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Who's he in this case? The rich. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. What is the context here? Still in trials, aren't we? Still talking about trials. And what he's saying here is, If you are poor and you find yourself in trials, don't think that the way out of your trials is necessarily to become rich. What he's saying is the poor have a place in God's economy and it is no more exalted than the place of the rich in God's economy. And if either or both of you are in trials, the way to get your wisdom is to talk to God, ask him for wisdom, and not lean on your worldly circumstances or not blame your worldly circumstances. So the rich man will tend to lean on his worldly circumstances. I've got a lot of money and I can ride this through and my wealth will keep me safe and so forth. The poor man tends to think, I got no resources, I got nothing I can do. If I were only rich, I could get out of this. And what he's saying is, no, that's not the case. And furthermore, he is saying to the poor man, there is nothing about the rich man that you should envy because the rich man is going to go eventually to the same place you're going to go to. And when you get there, you're both going to be in the same state. He's not actually speaking against wealth. What he's doing is speaking against 
either blaming or depending on your physical circumstances in times of trial. Tevye says it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. And that's true. It isn't. But the poor are necessary in God's economy. Because if the poor don't exist, the rich have no place to give. Read this verse 9 again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So what he's saying is the lowly brother who is having problems with adversity and has a human tendency to blame his poor circumstances for the adversity he's in is in fact exalted. Similarly, the rich man, who in his adversity is tempted in his pride to lean on his wealth to solve his problems, really ought to exalt in his humiliation, humility. In other words, he needs to bring himself low as opposed to trusting in riches. So now I am all the way down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So where are we now? Back to trials, aren't we? This whole thing then is back up in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Then this whole riff all the way down to verse 12 is in the context of meeting worldly trials. And at the end of it he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the whole idea here is the trial that you are undergoing is in fact something that God intends to use for your benefit. And in that context then, either the poor man giving up because he doesn't have enough resources and he just sort of gives up, or the rich man trying to skate out from under the trial by buying his way out of it are both missing the point of the trial that God has given them. This whole first dozen or so verses is all in the context of trials. As I say, it's an at-bash pattern, which is uh, Aleph, Bet, so forth. Uh, it's a chiasm. And all of the stuff in between 2 and 12 is in the context of trials. So I'm all the way down now to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Yeshua has exactly the same lesson. But you know what it is? It's in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Isn't that basically the same thing that James is saying? James again now, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you have a progression there. Yeshua is saying the same thing in a more compact form. 
And what Yeshua is saying and James is saying is you look upon a woman with lust. Wow. Now, you know, there isn't anything wrong with a guy admiring a well-assembled woman or conversely. God made us attractive to each other. So if you look at the well-assembled woman, you say, good job, God. Nothing wrong with that. No harm, no foul. But when you start speculating and you start fantasizing, that's when what you are doing is you are giving way to your desires or your lust. And what happens is you set that seed of desire or lust and you dwell on it. And that's the thing you think about when you're off by yourself, mowing the lawn or tending your sheep or whatever it is you do by yourself. And it keeps growing. And then at some point, an opportunity presents itself. And at that point, basically the deed is already done because you entertain the fantasy clear back at the beginning. And so what James is saying is just giving you a more fleshed out sequence than what Yeshua is giving you. And so James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So instead of saying, wow, good job, God, that's a good looking person. And just moving on, you start saying, hmm, well, I wonder what that would be like. Well, I wonder if I could. Well, gee, I, I wonder if maybe. And you start speculating and fantasizing. And what that is, is desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. The actual sin, if you will, is when you consummate the act. That's the sin. But what Yeshua and James are both saying is, at a certain point, the sin simply is a formality because you have gone all the way in your mind. Virtually no embezzler starts off intending to be a thief, but they wind up being thieves, and this is the progression. Verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we shall be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So this is going back up to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And then he goes under this little riff about the process of how temptation, if you entertain it, eventually leads to sin. The sin itself becomes just a formality. And then he says, God gave you only good gifts. He didn't give you this temptation. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. One way to look at this is perhaps, since he is writing to Hebrews, and at the Exodus, God made a swap. And he swapped the firstborn of Egypt for Israel, so that Israel became his firstborn. And then he swapped the firstborn of Israel for the Levites. So there were a couple of swaps by firstborn. So it certainly could be he's talking in that context. The creation was crowned and complete with the creation of humanity. We then proceeded to muck it up, but we were to have been the first fruits in the glory of his creation. And you can look at the rest of the Bible as the process of taking all the screw-ups that we did and working through them 
so that he can, in fact, get us back to being what he originally created us to be. Either explanation is okay. I don't know which one he's speaking of, but certainly both of them would be familiar to Hebrews. The fact that they are the firstborn and the fact that we, humanity, are also the culmination of creation. And in that sense, we're the first fruits. I tend to think that this whole universe is designed to generate human souls. And it's designed to develop the character of human souls. It's designed to mature human souls. And so the human souls that are produced as a result of the trials and so forth in this creation are the harvest. That's the reason he made it all. So verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is straight out of Proverbs. We just finished a fairly coherent argument going over several paragraphs, and now what we're doing is going to come back, we're going to focus on the word, and we're going to do some sound bites, and now he's going to elucidate that. So the first thing is, out of Proverbs, that a fool says everything he knows instantly. And in that process, lets everybody know that he doesn't know very much. And the wise man doesn't speak a lot. So the idea of quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, you can find all of those concepts in Proverbs. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So now we're going to talk about the word. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So that's a marshal. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if you are a hearer of the word only, what are you doing? How are you deceiving yourself? What he's saying here is mere memorization of the word. If you stop there and you believe because you know the word and you know the Bible, you have somehow picked up righteousness, then you are deceiving yourself. And there are a whole lot of people that can quote a whole lot of scripture that I don't think are particularly righteous. And I will suggest that they are deceiving themselves because they will puff themselves up and say, I can quote the entire book of John in the original King James just like Jesus spoke it. You know people like that. They are not doers of the word. They are simply hearers of the word. And in that, they have deceived themselves because they have not taken the next step. Verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. Think about this in context. Think about this as somebody who has memorized a lot of scripture and has studied himself in the mirror and said, you're really pretty good stuff. I mean, you're handsome. People are impressed with you. 
You can quote the Bible in the original King James. The other thing it could be is looking in the mirror and seeing your warts and then walking away and forgetting about them. It could also be that. I can see that either way. But the whole point here is I get the impression that at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is somebody who is self-congratulatory about his knowledge of the Word. And he regards himself as someone who is looking in the mirror and saying, hmm, well, you're really hot stuff. People are going to be impressed with you. I've got my sport coat on. I've got my tie tied straight. I have got my Bible under my arm. I am good to go. What he's saying is, Looking in the mirror doesn't give you a true picture of yourself because he will then say in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what he's saying is, what is the true mirror that shows what you are like? Scripture. Scripture is the only appropriate mirror that you can look into and it will tell you honestly what you're like. Whereas if you look into a mirror, you have an entirely false impression of yourself and you can go away from there and not do anything that you're supposed to do in Scripture because you're so impressed with yourself. So I'm all the way down to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Stop and think about what he said there. If anyone thinks he's religious, but does not bridle his tongue. Well, what have we just talked about back up in verse 19? Be quick to hear, be slow to speak. Then we have talked about two ways of getting an image of yourself. One false and one true. And then at the end here, it says, if you have a false image of yourself and you cannot bridle your tongue, which is to say you cannot resist giving everybody around you the benefit of your superior spiritual wisdom, then your religion is worthless. What you're doing is you're deceiving your own heart. And then your religion is then worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what James is saying here is, there's a whole lot of religion going on out there. There's a whole lot of people that got their leather-bound Bibles, and they are not, in fact, doing the things that Torah would have them do, which is to show kindness, to show mercy, to lend to the poor, to visit the sick, to do all of those things. And if the stuff in your leather-bound King James Bible doesn't make it to your everyday actions, then your religion is worthless. And it doesn't matter how accurately you can quote it. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.